please rise for our scripture lesson today. Uh, Our scripture comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Leah. Today we come to the last of the letters to the seven churches that are in Asia that form chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. And this, uh, the seventh letter is to the church in Laodicea. And the purpose of this letter, like the purpose of all the other ones, uh, is to kind of pull back the curtain to uncover God's perspective uh, from heaven on the church's circumstances on earth. In fact, that's what the book of Revelation is about. The, the Greek word, the Greek title of this book is Apocalypse, which literally means to uncover. And as we said throughout, this is not to uncover secrets about the future, but to uncover comfort in the present by seeing our journey on earth through the lens of heaven. And so this last letter uh, to Laodicea is by far the most famous of the seven. If you've heard of any of them, you've probably heard of this one, right? Because you have these, this striking image of being lukewarm and therefore uh, being spit out of Jesus' mouth. And you got this iconic image of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, waiting to be let in. And this is, uh, this is a really, really important letter to understand. Because you need to know there is, there's an emotion ascribed to Jesus here that is not said of him on any other page of Scripture. And when something like that happens, we should sit up and we should lean in. And that emotion that is ascribed to him here is disgust. It's disgust. When he says that because of their lukewarmness, he wants to spit them out of his mouth, the word, the word is vomit. He's actually saying to the church in Laodicea, you make me sick. You make me want to throw up. Your religion makes me nauseous. Now, that's, uh, this is the strongest rebuke in all the seven letters, and perhaps this is the church in the worst shape of all the seven. And when the all-powerful and the all-loving God of the universe, when the same Jesus who self-identifies as gentle and lowly says something like this, I don't know, we, it should grab our attention, right? We should listen up. Because this is the difficult question that we need to wrestle through with today as the church. Is our religion nauseating to God? What kind of religion, what is, what is the kind of religion that makes God nauseous? 
Because if we're doing something that, got, that makes God sick, this is something we would like to know, right? Something I'd like to know. It reminds me of a friend of mine some years back who had three young kids who just kept, kept getting strep throat over and over and over again. They just pass it and pass it and pass it and pass it until finally they tested him. And they realized he was the carrier. And so he had, even though he had no idea, he was the one who was making his kids sick. Because in the same way, is it possible that our religion is making God sick? And we have no idea. That's what we want to explore today. Is this the effect our religion has on God? Is it the effect our religion has on other people? If so, we need to know. And it all hinges on what it means, what in the world it means to be lukewarm. So let's ask two questions today. What is that? What is lukewarmness? And what can be done about it? What is it? And what can be done? First of all, what is it? Now, like all these letters, this aspect of the church in Laodicea is rooted in the historic context of the city. I've loved this about each of these letters. So here's what you need to know about Laodicea. It was an incredibly wealthy city. Incredibly wealthy. It was situated at this junction of major trading routes, and the city had become famous for its wealth. Like millionaires lived here, equivalency lived there. In fact, it was so wealthy that when a major earthquake damaged the city in 61 AD, not long before this letter, they refused government assistance to help them rebuild. They were the kind of city that was proud to say, hey, we can take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. This city was so rich. It was rich in every way except for one thing. They didn't have water. They did not have a sustainable source of water. And so they had to use their wealth to pipe it in from the outside. And they got it from two primary sources. Four or five miles to the north is a city called Hierapolis that is famous even today for their natural hot springs. These hot springs that draw tourists from all over the world. And this, this chemically rich water was in ample supply, so Laodiceans built an aqueduct to bring it all the way to their city, four or five miles away. The second source was to their neighbor 11 miles to the southeast, which was Colossae, same one the book of Colossians is written to. It was also abundant with water, but theirs came from these high snow-capped mountains that ran down. And therefore, it was like a refreshing, cold, alpine-like flow of water. And the Laodiceans also imported this to their city. But friends, the problem is, in both cases, by the time the water reached Laodicea, what had happened? It was lukewarm. It was lukewarm. The hot water from the springs had cooled, and the cold water from the mountains had warmed under the Turkish sun. And because it was lukewarm, it was less useful than it would have been from the original source. In particular, the lukewarm water from the hot springs was undrinkable. You could use it for other things, but you did not want to consume it. This, as this chemically concentrated water cooled, it was unsuitable for consumption, unless, actually, for medicinal reasons, you wanted to make yourself sick. It's the only reason you would drink this. It was only good for spitting out. See, now you see. The church in Laodicea would know exactly what Jesus is saying. When he says, your religion makes me want to do the same thing that happens if you drink the lukewarm water from the hot springs. It makes me throw up. 
And when Jesus says that he wishes that they were either hot or cold, I don't think this means he wishes people either loved him or hated him, or instead of being indifferent to him. That's been a, I don't know if you've heard sermons on this before, that's been a popular take on it. I don't think that's what's happening, as if to say that hating him is somehow even better than being indifferent to him. I just don't, I just, I can't find anywhere, that's not a sentiment that God expresses anywhere else in the Bible, that he would want people to hate him. I think what he is saying, though, is that the spiritual condition of the church is is in no better shape than the city's drinking water. It's only good for being spit out. I think we should be careful. I, I don't think we should press the imagery too far. The lukewarm water is meant to show us how God responds to the spiritual state of the church. And perhaps how other people are responding as well. But I don't think it tells us what that spiritual condition is that's evoking that response. To understand that, we have to keep reading. To look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I think this gets to the heart of it. Right? Like the city was rich in every way except for water, so the church was rich in every way except towards God. In fact, their material wealth had deceived them into thinking they also had spiritual wealth before God. Brothers and sisters, they were blind to their own desperate need before Christ. I think that's what it means. In the end, this is what lukewarm means. It elicits this response. This is what evokes such a strong reaction from Christ when someone is unaware of their true condition before him. When someone dares to utter the words, I need nothing. When they are clothed with perhaps the finest threads the world has, they're actually naked before God. When they claim to see, but they're blind. When they are materially rich, but spiritually bankrupt. When they have prospered before others, but are in fact wretched before God. That's what Jesus says is so pitiable. Actually evokes, evokes pity, compassion, when someone doesn't see themselves for who they truly are. This reminds me of the early years of the American Idol reality show. You remember this? I, I still have my skepticism about whether it was actually real or not. But in the early auditions, the greatest entertainment value came from these people who truly thought they were great singers and had to be told uh, likewise. Had to be told, in fact, they were terrible because apparently they didn't have honest parents or friends. So Simon Cowell had to break the news to them. So friends, the church and Laodicea. The church, mind you, not we're not talking about the unbelieving world. The church is deceived about their own spiritual state. They think they're rich, but they're poor. They think they can see, but they're blind. And so Jesus sends this letter to help them see their true need of him. And brothers and sisters, he writes this letter to you and me too. I think this is yet another letter that is particularly appropriate and challenging to the church in our context. In one of the wealthiest parts of the world. We have to ask, are we particularly susceptible to not being able to perceive our true need of Christ because of our external wealth 
has blinded us. If you have everything else, can you actually feel your need of him? Actually, I think all seven of these letters have been revealing the devil's playbook to us of how he works with the church. That is, if he cannot get you to give up through persecution, then he will make you numb through pleasure. If he cannot get you to compromise by taking away things from you, he will get you to compromise by giving you everything. I think we're watching the parable of the soils from the Gospels play out in real time. Remember the story? Sometimes the seed of God's word is sown on the rocky ground. And Jesus says that's when it's first received with joy, but it doesn't have deep roots. And so when tribulation or when persecution arises, they immediately fall away. And sometimes the seed is sown among thorns. And Jesus says this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, listen, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Or as Jesus says elsewhere, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is it impossible? No. All things are possible with God. But friends, this letter reminds us how deceptive riches can be to seeing our true condition before God. The fact that every one of us are poor beggars in need of his mercy. Friends, do not miss the grace in this, though. There is such grace in this. This is hard to hear, but listen to the grace. He's telling you to what you need, or what do you need if you were to stand before God right now? He's telling you all you need is need. All you need is need. In the words of one of my favorite hymns written by Joseph Hart, we sang it today, Come You Sinners, but we didn't sing this, this verse. And Joseph Hart writes this. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's the good news. All the fitness he requires from you is to feel your need of him. So what is this lukewarmness? It's someone who thinks they're a hot spring in Hierapolis, or a cool, refreshing drink from the mountains of Colossae, but they are a fact a lukewarm puddle in Laodicea. Someone who thinks they're rich, but they're poor before God. Then secondly, what do we do about it? What can be done about it? And this is tricky, because if the church in Laodicea, and if we are blind to our true spiritual condition, then how do we learn to see? We need someone to point it out to us, right? That's how this works. We call that person a true friend. Someone who shows us something that we can't see about ourselves. Like the friend that tells you you have something in your teeth at dinner. Like, that's real love, right? Something you cannot see about yourself, but they can see it. And so they point it out graciously, hopefully. Because that's what Jesus is saying in verse 19. He's saying, I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm telling you this because I'm a true friend. I reprove and I discipline those that I love. This is remarkable. He's saying the very same people that make him feel sick also make him feel love. He loves them. He loves us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. And that's when we start to get to the wonder of this passage. 
And that is that the church that is in the worst shape, the church that receives the strongest rebuke from Jesus is also the church that receives the strongest reward. The most intimate of promises. You see this in the, in the Greek tense. So in verse 17, it says that the church is continually, ongoingly saying, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. It's written to say, they're not saying this once, they're saying this ongoingly. And yet in verse 20, it says that Jesus continually, ongoingly stands at the door and knocks. The image is, they keep, they keep saying that they don't need him. And he keeps knocking. He keeps calling. He keeps pressing against the door. He's drawing near to the church in Laodicea. He cannot stay away from them. In the end, he doesn't want to spew them out. He wants to invite them in to dine with him. Brothers and sisters, how wonderful is the grace of Jesus that no person, no church, is beyond the reach of his love. In fact, he is pleading with them. He is urging them to come to him to find what they truly need. Not what they need, not the false wealth of the world, but the true wealth that only comes from knowing him. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. The, Greeks, the Greek is emphatic. Buy from me what you really need, which is gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You might be asking, what does this mean? Well, these three items, gold, garments, and anointment, and ointment, were chosen on purpose because these were actually three of the greatest sources of wealth in Laodicea. Gold. Because Laodicea was the banking capital of the region. It was a city of banks and bankers. It was rich. He mentions white garments because Laodicea was famous for this particular breed of, of black sheep, which made an especially fine quality of black wool. So like what Egyptian cotton is to us, Laodicean wool was to them. It's even kind of a fashion trend. Clothes made of this uh, Laodicean wool were highly sought after. And then salve, or eye ointment, because there was a famous medical school in Laodicea that specialized in ophthalmology, the healing of the eyes. There was this popular eye powder that came from this region that was sought as a remedy for weak eyes. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, not only is he revealing to him who they really are, remember? You're poor, you're blind, you're naked. But now he's inviting them to see who he really is. He's inviting them to find what they really need. Not in these things out here, but only what he can give. It's like he's saying, you boast in this eye powder that makes people see, but only I can give you eyes to see clearly. I am the one who opens spiritually blind eyes. You boast of being clothed in this fine black wool, but only I can give you the clothes, the, the finest garments that covers the shame of your sin. That dresses you in the white, holy purity of my righteousness. It's like he's saying, you boast in your banks, in your hoards of gold, but only I can give you a wealth that is more precious than anything. More precious than gold. He's saying you're actually poor, blind, and naked. 
and I have everything you need. Come, buy from me. Of course, what does it cost you to buy all this from Jesus, you might be asking? Nothing. It is absolutely free to you. Again, this is the wonder of the gospel. It's better than we can possibly imagine. All you need before God is need, and everything you need to buy from him is free. He has provided it all at his own expense. Jesus paid for it all. His perfect life is the price paid for that white garment of righteousness that makes you clean before God. His sacrificial death is the price paid that forgives the enormous debt of your sin and my sin. His glorious resurrection is the price paid that guarantees your share in Jesus' inheritance. That is life eternal. It's all free. It's like an echo of Isaiah 55. The prophet said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Incline your ear to me. Come to me here that your soul may live. All you need is need. And all you do to buy is to receive. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is the one who initiates. He knocks, he calls, he presses against the door. He enables you to open it, to respond, so that he may come in and have fellowship with you. Just in case it wasn't clear, that is the goal that Jesus is referring to. Not earthly riches, not health and wealth and the like, but a communion with the God of the universe that can make you rich even if health and wealth fail you. True wealth is having every spiritual blessing in Christ. The old theologian John Owen, he helps us understand what it's like to have these riches. He writes, whatever the world may think of Christians, yet Christians have food to eat that the world knows nothing of. The saints have close communion and fellowship with the Father. Owen says, it's clear then that Christians are the most misunderstood people in the world. Let the world think as they please, but Christians have intimate, spiritual, heavenly joys because their fellowship is a fellowship of love with the Father. In the first century world, as in ours, your status often depended upon who you had table fellowship with by the company you keep around your dinner table. And so when the church in Laodicea heard these words about eating with Jesus, dining with him, they would have definitely thought about what they did every Sunday. The Lord's Supper was a, a weekly reminder that God gathers around his table those that the world considers to be poor. And he communes with them. And therefore that makes them the richest people in the world because of the company they keep at this meal. And not only that, friends, it gets even better. Because for now, this communion with God is by faith. It's not by uh, our visual sight. But one day it will be. And verse 21 hints at that. The one who conquers, 
I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He's saying he not only shares his table with you, he'll share his throne with you. He will let you share in his rule over the new heavens and the new earth. One commentator summarizes this idea. He says, for those who do renew their zeal for Christ and return to him, whatever they have lost in the scheme of this world will be more than compensated for by their share in the rulership in the eternal kingdom. So then, we return to our question of the day. How do we make sure that our religion is not nauseating to God or to others? Well, friends, I don't think there is anything more sickening to God or to our neighbors than when Christians don't know who they are before God. When they're smug. When they're pretending they have everything together. When we're defensive about our own sin, but we're offensive in pointing out other sins. When we're harsh or judgmental or hypocritical or virtue signaling all because we don't see our true spiritual condition before God. But also means that the inverse of that is true. That is, there is nothing more beautiful to God or to our neighbors than when Christians are humble and honest, authentic. When they're poor in spirit and gentle and merciful and sacrificial and warm and passionate about the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ because they know they need him. They know what they are apart from him, and they know how that rich they are in him. In a 2021 article entitled, Make Christianity Beautiful Again, PCA pastor in Nashville, Scott Sauls, he admits in his article, he says, these days, the name Christian seems to evoke as many negative reactions as it does positive ones. He quotes the San Francisco journalist Herb Cain, who said, The trouble with born-again Christians is that they are in even bigger pain the second time around. <laughs> and then he quotes the author Anne Rice, a Christian, who says of the church that we have become quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and a deservedly infamous group. Ouch. And yet, brothers and sisters, there is hope. Because Christ loves his church. He loves the church more than any of us combined. And he is committed to making her a radiant bride. And listen to the vision that author Madeline Lingle, that Scott Sauls quotes in his thing. Listen to the vision that she gives us of what we could be. She says, we draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. By showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Brothers and sisters, that is the message. That's the message of the season of Epiphany, which is capped off today by Transfiguration Sunday. This is the message to all the seven letters to the churches. That Christ is that light. And that every church is a lampstand that is called to shine that light in the world. To shine a light that is so lovely that people want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Friends, that is not nauseating. 
That is beautiful. That is beautiful orthodoxy. That is the aroma of Christ. May he make it true of us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we ask that as a true friend, you would speak words to us. You would help us to see things we can't see about ourselves. Lord, help us to know where we are blind, where we are poor, where we are naked. And then, Lord, lead us to the only place where we can find what we actually need. Lord, make us more and more like yourself. Not lukewarm, not, not wishy-washy, but you who has the words of the amen, who says what's true. You who are the faithful and the true witness, would you make us a faithful and a true witness of everything we have found in you? Lord, cause us to be beautiful. Cause us to be the aroma of Christ. Cause us to bear that light that makes people beg to know what is the source of that. Lord, I pray we would be beautiful to you and to our neighbors. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.